opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hi, everybody. Um, welcome to our Demand Our Access podcast. Um, this is Desiree Sturdivant. We've been having some technical things happening with the, the panelist link that we have, so we're trying to get Jonathan up, up on here. Um, so I am here. Okay, he's here, and yep, I'm going to promote okay. him. I'm going to hey. promote him right now. Okay. Okay, um, Jonathan, you receive a message um, that you'll need to consent. Thank you. Can you hear me now? Yes, yep. we sure can. Okay. Yay, we're here. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, yeah, so... Uh, Thank you for um, helping us with the workaround. Um, we will get started right away um, with our content. Uh, my name is Jonathan Simeone. I am the host of the Demand Our Access podcast and website. Uh, as a brief announcement on our last episode, I said I wanted to have a Zoom meeting with people outside and invited people to email me. I've heard from two people so far who would, are interested in doing that, just a private discussion about the website and the podcast and the things we talk about. Uh, if this is something that interests you, please uh, write me at jonathan at demandhouraccess.com or go to the website and fill out the contact form. Um, I will schedule that meeting with whoever expresses an interest by the end of the upcoming week. So if you're interested, please let me know. With that, in this episode, uh, we have two topics that we want to cover. Our primary topic um, was a switch from what we planned to originally discuss because we want to update you about um, Desiree's adventures uh, with uh, Alaska Airlines and her complaint. Um, because there are some updates we believe would be interesting to most of you and that you should hear. Um, and then, time uh, permitting, we will move on to uh, a brief discussion of the web content accessibility guidelines. Uh, there will be no uh, recorded presentation here. All of this is live today. I am going to uh, attempt to get this recording from ACB and put it on the website later for folks to go back to if they want to, but this is what we are trying today, something different. So um, Desiree, uh, thank you for being with us again. Yep. Uh, would you like to give, for people who are new, give a little uh, brief information about um, a couple of the things that got us here, like filing your complaint mm -hmm. and so forth? Yep. So uh, I've been, you know, flying a lot over the last year or so, sometimes with my guide, sometimes without. And so last year, uh, I filed a complaint against Alaska Airlines because they were giving me trouble uh, with forms and different things uh, with my guide dog getting um, on the plane. And so we filed that complaint in January. We heard back from them about that last month and we had an episode where we kind of talked about what happened with that and, and kind of having to go back and forth with them. They're basically Alaska airlines is saying that, you know, uh, they were able to accommodate me and that, you know, I didn't do the different things I was supposed to do with the form. And that's why, you know, it was, it was ultimately a problem. So this time, uh, and I, this uh, newest thing um, is actually <laughs> a different, going to have to be a different complaint because uh, last week I flew home and made sure that I had all my forms and had lots of backup. I had emails com confirming that all of those were in place for both legs of my trip. But when I flew back, I again had problems not with the form this time, but with my seat and not being able to change the seat ahead of time and asking at the gate to be moved into an accessible seat 
um, which we know is is within my rights to ask for, um, and ultimately having trouble. Not only did I not get to pre-board, did not get the seat that I needed and wanted, and um, almost didn't get to board at all because they were completely at a loss as to what they were supposed to do and what the rules were. And um, we, we had some complaints from uh, the people that they were kind of moving around to try to get me the seat that I needed with my guide dog. And they got free miles out of it because they moved and all of that. And um, I was stuck <laughs> not being able to pre-board. I was the very last one on the plane. Um, I got on, on there and stood there let's, in the uh, aisle. And, well, go ahead. and Yeah, let's. Yeah, yeah let's stop for right. a minute. And and let's because uh, that's a whole different. It's a whole different thing. So yeah, I think we need to break this up a little. Um, OK, so. What I want to add to this discussion, um, in case we have new people, and of course the information is new to everybody or most people. Uh, I was with Desiree at the airport. Um, my mom was going to show Desiree to the gate um, so she didn't have to rely on airport or airline personnel to do that. Um, and uh, when we got to the uh, ticket counter, of course, they always tell you they can't change your seat. And I want to make sure everybody understands this. Desiree had called uh, a few weeks before this flight and asked to change the seat, and they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't change it again at the at the ticket counter. So the reason I bring those issues up is the law, which I'm just going to be blunt here, is a terrible law. Uh, and we're seeing how bad it is every day. And I really hope that uh, advocacy organizations like ACB, and if, if anybody in ACB wants to talk about this and develop a strategy around it, uh, please let me know. Um, it's a terrible law. It's not working. It's harming people. And, and that's the truth. And so the law allows them to tell you you have to check in three hours ahead of time. But uh, they didn't say that. So first of all, it didn't apply in this situation. But I'm raising it in the context of the podcast to say that our experience, uh, both of us being blind, is that when you get to the airport, and I'm sure anyone who travels fairly often can relate to this, uh, there is nobody at the gate two and a half to three hours early connected to your flight. And if the check-in people cannot help you at the counter and change your seat, which is what they consistently tell us every single time we have gone to the airport in recent years, um, checking in three hours early accomplishes nothing other than you get to gate and sit there probably why other flights board that are using that gate for yours the other thing i want to point out is that there are a couple of different seating methods the airlines can choose from as we covered before and all of the information we've covered before is on the website if you want to go back and have a refresher it's all there but Alaska uses what's called the priority boarding method, which means they have to block off a certain number of seats for people with, with disabilities. We believe they typically do rows 11 through 13. That's what we're guessing based on what we've seen. Um, they're also supposed to notify people who buy tickets in those seats that they are subject to being moved if somebody with a qualifying disability requests one of those seats. And uh, to our knowledge, from what we heard from angry passengers <laughs> at the airport, and what we've seen when we buy tickets ourselves is that they are not doing that. They are not telling people if you buy those seats, you uh, could be moved if a person with a disability requests those seats. The other thing that's really important to know here is that under the law, a person traveling with a service animal, as Desiree was, is the highest qualified person with a disability. 
And what that means is that when Desiree requests an accessible seat, uh, they are required because she has a service animal to give her either the seat she requested or the bulkhead, a bulkhead seat. Now, I strongly disagree with that. Um, I think you should get seat you request, especially since they're supposed to be blocking off seats. But while we were at the counter, I explained that to the people behind the counter, who then went and got their crow, their civil rights officer, who then would not talk to us. The crow would not talk to us. The crow only talked with uh, the airline personnel. Um, and the crow is supposed to be helping you resolve issues, but the crow would not speak to us. So there is a whole other issue. Mm -hmm. But the crow did tell them that they had to move Desiree. And while we were standing there, uh, they were talking to passengers who had not been told they were subject to being moved. And we could tell because of the anger that people were displaying. And uh, they started offering people rewards and asking for their email addresses so they could send them things. Meanwhile, person who's entitled to the legal coverage uh, is standing there. And I'm just going to say it because, you know, it's embarrassing. It's humiliating. Yeah. Makes you stand out. Yep. And it's all because they are violating the law. B, they have no training on what they're supposed to do. And C, even where the law could be useful, it's not good enough. My view is the priority method has to go away. If no one is going to force them to do it correctly, which clearly is not, and they're not doing it voluntarily, they have to be willing, forced, willing's not the right word, to be to block off seats that can't be sold until so long ahead of the flight, 24 hours. Uh, the other option here is when Desiree books the ticket and calls the accessibility hotline, why can't they change the mm -hmm. seat weeks ahead of time, right? Mm -hmm. There's no excuse for this. What is the point of having an accessibility hotline if you can't do this, if you can't actually get your accessibility needs met? Um, so those are things that I wanted to, to throw in here. But now, Desiree, uh, mm -hmm. I want you to go on and tell folks um, what happened once you got on the plane? Because I'm going to be honest, I have had two service animals myself. I've been flying um, independently since 1998. So, you know, 25 years. And uh, in all the trips I took myself with a service animal that I know other people, I have never seen anything like this. Um, other people probably have. I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying this is the worst uh, that I have been a part of. So, Desiree, why don't you tell everybody what happened next? Yeah. So, so you know, Val, Val's my guide dog, and we get on the plane, and she's, you know, we've been standing and sitting around for, you know, quite a while waiting for them to let us go on the plane. I had a backpack and everything else, and. Uh, no pre-boarding. So we're pushing our way through. Everybody's pretty much seated except us. And then we stop at the aisle where the seat where they were supposed to, that was on my pass, my new seat uh, was supposed to be. And someone else was already sitting there. And she said, I've already moved once. I'm not moving again. I'm upset. And everybody's, you know, staring at Val and I standing there in the aisle, like we don't know what to do. Right. And, um, and, uh, you know, so we're just kind of standing there. The crow comes on the plane and she's, you know, she says to the, that passenger, you know, I'm really sorry about this. You know, um, we will get you free things before we pull out of this gate. I will make sure that you get these rewards and I will, you know, compensate you for that, for your inconvenience. And, you know, please, and actually we can upgrade you to premium right now. Let's go ahead and do that for you. Um, so she, took that. And also the person next to her took that because they didn't want to sit next to the dog. <laughs> and um, so the two of them got out, got their premium seat. And of course, you know, 
we're all shuffling in the aisle. I couldn't get Val to go into the into the aisle, which wasn't the bulkhead. It was, and I'd actually, you know, I I would prefer bulkhead at this point or anything, you know, closer to the front, um, and and with more leg room because I knew I was going to have to sit next to someone else. And so, um, so we get in there, and I mean, it, it took me probably a good two minutes or more to get her in there get my bag put up. And meanwhile, they're getting ready to take off. I mean, they even did the whole, okay, we're getting ready to pull away. And the gate, the doors are closing, all of that. And, and still, you know, I can't even get into my seat because everything's, you know, crazy and we didn't get to pre-board. Um, and just, just the embarrassment of it, right. It was very, um, uh, undignified to have to be stared at that way and put on that, that kind of a, a spot where you can't do anything about it. And you know that you're not in the wrong, but everybody's looking at you like, gosh, you know, you're just causing trouble, you know, um, that's, you know, that's kind of where it was. And, and even like the flight attendants both came up to me afterward, like after the planes, you know, taking off and everything. And they're like, you know, we can't believe the people at this, at this gate for this airline really did not do their job. Well, like, it, it, you know, and I had no trouble with any of this from this airport. So it was clearly a problem with the training um, for the people working in, in that airport for Alaska. Now, I just want to make sure that, um, so when Desiree says she didn't get to pre-board, pre-boarding is not a luxury. It's not a courtesy. It is legally required. You are legally entitled to pre-board and because mm -hmm. they had no idea what they were doing not only did Desiree not pre-board she was the last person to board yep and then because she didn't pre-board he couldn't put her bag where she wanted Desiree tell everybody yeah it where, ended up what like happened four with rows. your bag yeah they took it and put it about four rows ahead of me um up in the whatever was left of the overhead compartments um so I had to get help, you know, where is it when I got off the plane? Um, so yeah, that, that. But it that. also means that if you want something during the flight, nope. you cannot get it yourself. No, nope. you don't know where it is. And nope. they took it away from you because there was no space where you were. All of that is supposed to be prevented by the pre-boarding process. Mm -hmm. So is getting the service animal situated. Yep. But I also want to make sure everyone caught one of the things you said, because this is really important. And this uh, part honestly um, really raises my blood pressure, which is not a good thing. Nope. <laughs> uh, the pro who is the civil rights official by the airline was apologizing to the other passengers yep. was giving the other passengers free miles and other rewards. The crow never spoke to you nope. directly. Nope. Never offered you anything for nope. your in inconvenience and humiliation about not being their unwillingness to follow the law. So the crow was working to advantage other people not the person who has civil rights protection, not the person who's supposed to be worked with by the civil rights officer. The crow literally didn't speak a single word. Nope. And that's the kind of stuff that uh, just makes this story unbelievable to me. Because, you know, if I wasn't there to witness most of this, I mean, it, it, you would say they can't really be that incompetent. They can't really <laughs> just be that horrible, but they are. Mm -hmm. And and it's, it, it's just, it's a disaster out there for people who have the right to travel with service animals. And I have heard from other people, you know, who have to travel. And, and honestly, I think about it myself. You know, I, I, I am, I don't have a service animal now. And I think, you know, if I get one, I'm going to be subjected to all of yeah. this too. 
And it's yep. something you think about. And that is outrageous. But and, I, I just want to go ahead. And I'm, I mean, you know, you rethink like, okay, every trip you take, even if you say, I want to service animal, every trip you take, you think, well, do I really want to take my dog with me? Do I really want my independence that much to have to go through all of that aggravation and stress yeah. and put the dog through that? Honestly, she was very stressed. I mean, she's, she's a good natured girl, but she didn't, she, she could feel it too, you know? Um, yeah. And I, I want to also, uh, you know, make sure that if people understand the first two prongs of the Department of Transportation's Passengers with Disability Bill of Rights are treating passengers with dignity and treating passengers with respect. Under no one's definition of dignity and respect have they treated you this way. No. Nope. And so, so everyone understands uh, we will be filing another complaint probably on Monday. Um, there will be information about that complaint on the website. But I want to stop and see uh, if we have any questions, comments, anything like that from the audience at this point. Mm -hmm. So uh, our host. No, so, so far, no hands raised in Zoom. Okay. Uh, do we and have in anything Clubhouse? in Clubhouse? Uh, not the last time I checked. Okay. Um, so uh, I'm going to give it a, a couple, uh, a minute or so, because I, I don't want to change topics um, until we know that, that people uh, don't have any questions or comments about this. So I'll say, Desiree, do you, is there anything else you want to share about your experience with this? So, you know, other than what we've touched on, um, just completely undignified, disrespected, it definitely makes me want to pick a different airline. The trouble we have is that the other part to this is that it's really hard to get help at the airport if you have to do a connecting flight. Um, and so we are in some ways stuck with them because they are the only ones that offer the direct flight. You don't, if products, you don't mind... You know, yeah. It's kind of related, um, and it's another tremendous failing of the Air Carrier Access Act. Why don't you spend a couple minutes telling everybody about your experiences trying to book a ride home from the airport? Oh, yeah, and why yeah. this matter? Why, why don't we get into <laughs> yeah. this for a few minutes? This is and this is one of the problems, another one too. So, you know, the airport staff are only required to take you to the like the curb or the terminal you know where you get off the plane they don't have to take you to catch other transportation forms or anything like that at my airport here in austin they moved where all the ride shares and the shuttles and the taxi cabs can pick you up and you have to walk quite a ways out there and um of course you know depending on your flight like mine got in at midnight Right. So I'm by myself with my dog trying to find my way out um, to catch whatever ride home I can. And the airport people even told me directly they are not permitted to leave that the, the curbside or, you know, terminal area to walk with me out to the garages and the different places where I would need to catch any of those. So the only option I have found that works is a very pricey option. Um, it's run through Super Shuttle. And they will actually, if, for a $30 fee on top of the $150 that they charge you to get from the airport to my house, they will have someone meet you in baggage. Um, and even and like in my case, I didn't have a bag, but I had to pay for that so that I wasn't left trying to find my way or hope that maybe I could ask somebody in the, you know, at midnight <laughs> um, to get out to uh, where I could pick up. Uh, that shuttle or a cab or whatever my choice was to go home. Um, and that's, you know, if you don't have somebody that can pick you up from the airport here, that's, that's the option that we have. Um, you can't use Uber unless you can get to where the Ubers are permitted to pick you up. They can't go to the curbside area like they used to. And I want to make sure everybody understands this. 
the, it, the law does not permit, does not say they can't take you to another place. It does not say they can't take you. But the law is foolish because it says they are required. It only requires them to take you to a curb area or meet you at a curb area adjacent to the terminal. Mm -hmm. So the law does not reflect reality. Uh, and we've talked about this a little bit in prior episodes, but just as a recap, uh, a lot of airports, as Desiree is describing, have moved the ride share away from the terminal. It's some places it's in like over by the rental car area. Uh, some mm -hmm. places you have to cross um, uh, some streets to get to it. It's like a block or two down uh, in a parking lot. Uh, but the point is, because the law is so badly written, um, and honestly, you know, speaking for myself, remember the disclaimer they play at the beginning of these shows. Um, you know, the law was really written by industry for industry does not represent people with disabilities. It is a terrible civil rights law, in my view. Uh, it was a gift to the industry. It really limits what they have to do. Uh, and there's really no oversight uh, unless people file complaints. Um, and that's why we will. But back to this issue of the, of the uh, curbs. So what the airlines are telling people, what they have told Desiree, multiple people, um, is actually wrong. What the truth is, is that they are taking the law in its most narrow reading and are refusing to do anything beyond the bare minimum. Um, they have no interest in the fact that you cannot actually get to ride share by yourself and as I said in a previous podcast, we have an issue here at the Portland airport where it's hooked up to our light rail system, but there's only one light rail stop at the airport and it's in one terminal. So if you got off a plane in a different terminal uh, and you wanted to take public transportation home, if the airline interprets the, the law this narrow way, the bare minimum, what that means is they won't show you how they won't take you to the light rail station. Uh, and so this has a real world impact on people. And especially, you know, in Desiree's case, her flight literally landed at midnight. And so there was, you know, you're much less likely to find passengers who can help you. The airport is much less busy. Um, and, you know, honestly, just being real here, after all the things that happened on Desiree's flight, I'm guessing the people sitting around her weren't going to be no of a mood nope. to be helpful. But and I know a lot of people rely on passengers. I've done it myself. I understand why. But the fact is, a civil rights law could not mandate, force us, require us to get assistance to access basic things like reaching transportation away from the airport is a basic thing. You have to do it. Everyone who shows up at the airport has to leave the airport. Uh, this idea that they can leave you at any curb adjacent to the terminal, regardless of whether it actually gets you anywhere close to your transportation is absurd. It is categorically absurd. Um, yep. Now I, I'll stop again to see if we have any comments or questions. Nothing in Zoom? I got no hands in Clubhouse. in Clubhouse. Okay. So the final thing that I... Um, oh, we was... have, we, we do have a raised hand now in Zoom. Oh, Okay. Um, and it's a phone number. Uh, we have two raised hands now. Okay. Um, the first one is a phone number 518-517 and you may unmute. 
this is Mary Beth, and I uh, arrived late, so if you've answered this, I deeply apologize. But um, have has the media picked up on any of this? The, no, I, know, what happens? Not, not, yet? not, not <laughs> our story. I mean, um, you know. Yeah, that's media, what I meant. No, I mean we haven't done. That is another option we have. Um, we're we're open to you know, all possibilities, but, you know, honestly, one of the reasons I started this podcast was not only to educate people, but to maybe develop a coalition that's interested in really taking some of this on. And I know complaints are are not the easiest thing. I hope we're helping to make it a little easier for people. And I hope we're showing people the value in it. Uh, but this is why they need to happen because it has to be documented. There has this stuff has to be documented. The Department of Transportation will continue pretending that everything is working um, as long as we stay silent and allow them to do that. And and I would add to that that once you do it once, like for me, as as undignified as I felt. Uh, I've done it once before and now it's like, yep, I'm going to do it again. Like I'll just keep doing it. And because once you understand that it's, you know, it's possible and yeah, it may not change things right away, but it's not as scary as once thought perhaps. Um, every I, complaint, I would do it again. <laughs> Easy. And, and every complaint <laughs> that's filed is documented in a public report. It, it gets out there. Every complaint against an airline is publicized. Uh, and so, you know, I wish it wasn't this way. I wish the ADA was not complaint-based. I wish the government actually tried to enforce things and do its job and didn't leave it up to individuals to complain every time we're humiliated, every time our civil rights are violated. But that's not the system we have. No. Thank you. Good question. Thank you. And I believe we have another one. Yes, we have another one. Anne, uh, go ahead, please. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, I haven't flown in a while, but do they still have special assistance for people with disabilities? Well, yeah. I mean, technically, they have them. They'll tell you they have them. How well it works is always... Mm -hmm. A question, right? Many times when either one of us flies, um, we get off the plane and there's nobody there. Um, Mm -hmm. My last trip that I took by myself, uh, I got off the plane, even though I put when I bought my ticket, I checked the box that said I was blind. I checked that I needed assistance from the gate through the airport. I did everything that I was supposed to do. When I got to the check-in counter, uh, the ticket counter, I told them that I would need assistance. They said they put it in my file. When I got to the gate, they asked me if I needed assistance when I got off the plane. I told them I did. And when I got off the plane, there was nobody there to help me. Uh, And I waited there for almost 20 minutes until somebody showed up. And Mm -hmm. I I will say there have been other times when I have, when I've known where I was, I've been somewhat familiar with the airport. I've just started walking myself. Yep. Yep. Um, And I've asked other passengers and sometimes you have to do that. Um, And the other thing that should be talked about, I'm sure we've mentioned it before, but you know, it's not, it's just always amazing how, I, I mean, I tell them all the time. I, I only need assistance. I don't need a wheelchair. Right. And every single time, every single time they show up with a wheelchair, they 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 are surprised when you don't want it, when you don't need it. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of times they wind up pushing the wheelchair in front of you. So like sometimes I'm walking along and every now and then my foot will hit the empty wheelchair that they are pushing. Sometimes they it kind of goes along with it, I think. Yeah. Well, but that's the point. It shouldn't. If you say I don't need it. Right. If you say I don't use a wheelchair, why are they bringing you a wheelchair? Like 
they they don't even pay attention to what you're telling them. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, these are all um, issues that we that we face, and that's why I really urge people who fly uh, to say something when this stuff happens. Okay, we have another raised hand. Okay, thank you for your uh, question, Ann. Okay, I have a comment. This is Dawn, and I have a comment on, I think, why they bring wheelchairs out. It's not saying I agree with it, but I have never flown, but when we were in sixth grade, uh, my sixth grade class, we got to take a trip to D.C., uh, but of course, you know, if we wanted to go, we had to pay our own way. Well, when my mom talked to the teacher that was organizing the trip, I swear to God, this is exactly what she said. Well, we can just put Dawn in a wheelchair. And mom's like, well, she has legs. She can walk. And literally, this was, this was what this teacher said. Well, we're going to be walking fast, but so she won't be able to keep up with us. So literally, they think because we have a cane... Yeah. I, I have run into that so many times. I agree with your point. I think it's it's clearly ableism. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, I think ableism is something we gloss over Ugh. a lot of the time. Uh, I think ableism is, in fact, you know, maybe we should do a podcast on disability equity and disability justice. Oh, please. And not, and not just on technical rights under so that's an interesting idea so thank you for that don in two weeks in two weeks we will have a a, we will change gears because i think this stuff is really important i think we have to have an honest discussion about principles of equity which is very different than equality which is very different than uh than technical things under the law yeah because the the law is not tool of equity the law is the bare minimum right yeah and it just and gives we, us the protection to say hey this minimum, is the right you have bare minimum and we hear all the time about in society today about equity diversity and inclusion dei please save but it. i think we need <laughs> to have more of a discussion about how that applies to our community, and in this context, what does that actually mean? So uh, since we always adapt on the fly here, um, I think in two weeks that we will do a a topic on ableism, uh, principles of disability justice, and what what disability equity means. Now, I want to put the caveat out there. I will present it as to what equity means uh, from my perspective, um, with resources, um, and if anyone is interested in discussing a, a different perspective or a different thought, obviously, um, I would love to have that discussion with folks. But I think this is an important Thanks. conversation our community has to have, because it's not just about the bare minimum as prescribed in all these laws. Those things matter. Those technical things matter. You know, when we told them, when I told the people behind the counter that they use the priority method and they, you know, it changed. Before that, they were giving Desiree the runaround about, well, we can, I'm sorry, we can't move any. It's a full flight. Because they knew you knew what you were doing. So they once, yes. And once you do that, you know, because before I said that, they weren't going to accommodate her at all. Like that was their plan. To just leave her in the seat that she had had. Oh, and so God. the technical stuff matters, but I also think framing it in the constant con- context, excuse me, of equity, I think is is something very, uh, very worthwhile. I'd be um, interested so we will, in being a part of that discussion will, too. Yeah. So we will revisit that in two weeks uh, okay. in more detail. Thank you, Don. Uh, do we have any other questions at this point? No one in Zoom. Anyone in Clubhouse? Do we have anyone in Clubhouse? Nope. Nobody. No hands in Clubhouse. Wait a minute. Dawn. Uh, oh, okay. She lowered her hand. Okay. Okay. 
Um, I'm just going to wait another minute because I want to make sure and because um, we're down to a little more than 20 minutes left. So we're going to have a very cursory um, introduction into WCAG, um, and then we will come back to that in more detail um, probably in a month since we have already <laughs> decided to do um, the disability equity stuff um, in two weeks. Um, so with that, um, our, I'll do one last check. Um, and I don't know if, if Desiree can stay with us for the rest of the time. Um, Desiree, that's up to you. Um, if somebody wants to come back in and ask a question about this issue, the complaints and things, we'll, we'll, I will have another question period uh, at the end. But do we have any questions as of this moment? No hands in Zoom. Anything in Clubhouse? Uh, no, no hands in Clubhouse. Okay. Uh, so Desiree, uh, feel free to leave if you need to. Um, and we will move on to a brief discussion of the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, uh, WCAG. Now, I want to be very clear about this. We are not discussing a WCAG in the way that it is normally discussed on this podcast, or, or excuse me, in, in society. Uh, and again, I'm speaking for myself. It's always important to remind everybody of that. And in some ways, what I'm about to say actually goes nicely with the equity discussion that we're going to have on the next episode. And the reason for that is this. Uh, and we will have a much more technical discussion. But I want to start with what I see as the major issues for our community with WCAG. The Web Content Accessibility Guidelines are created by the Web Accessibility Initiative, which is a division of uh, the World Wide Web Consortium, which was founded by Tim Berners-Lee, who invented the web in 1989. So this is a is an interesting way, a factual way of saying, this is a group that really does have a lot of oversight and responsibility for what happens on the web. WCAG, the first version 1.0 came out in 2008. Uh, and so this has been an idea for, you know, 15 years now. Uh, we're currently on 2.1 is the official version. 2.2 is supposed to be adopted as the official latest version uh, this year. But 3.0 is currently in development, and now we expect is probably a couple of years off. But the real issue for me with WCAG is... Although we talk about it and it's used in court cases, in legal settlements, in discussions of compliance, unless it's adopted by an agency like Section uh, 508, for example, the federal government largely adopted WCAG. Some cities and states have also adopted it. But unless it's adopted, it's a voluntary standard. But here's the part that people never talk about. I have never been a part of a discussion about this. And I think it's really important. The Web Content Accessibility Working Group, the people who actually get in and develop the standards, is not what I'm guessing many of you listening to this think it is. And I'm, and I'm saying that because it's not what I thought it was. When I, it, when I started looking into this stuff years ago, it is not actually a, you know, a participation organization of advocates and advocacy organization and community members. Uh, it is actually largely a big tech operation. So Google, Microsoft, Apple, uh, those are the companies that are largely doing WCAG. 
their employees. Uh, Jonathan, we have um, about nine minutes left. I know we yeah, got started. I understand. Yep. I'm keeping track of the time. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Um, we have, uh, now I lost my train of thought. Uh-oh. So Beck is doing WCAG under the guise of the Web uh, and Accessibility Initiative. And that is a really big deal because uh, when I went to a webinar about this a couple of years ago, I asked uh, if I could participate and give comments. And I was told that you had to be a part of a member organization, which means you have to be, I researched it, you have to be part of a dues-paying organization. The vast majority of people involved in WCAG uh, development are not actually people with disabilities. Uh, the people who lead the drafting of the working group, uh, as far as I can tell, are not people with disabilities. In many ways, the development of WCAG, which uh, is supposed to be creating accessibility on the web, is, is about us without us. It is developed supposedly for our benefit, but with little to no input from people with disabilities. Now, what the people who support this idea say, uh, and I know because I've had a conversation about this with a couple of them, uh, is that, well, we do have people with disabilities, some, uh, but they're you know, they're employees of the company. Now, nothing against those people. But if someone works for Microsoft or Google or Apple or any of these participating companies, they are not showing up to these meetings as advocates. They aren't showing up with uh, their only responsibility to the community of people with disabilities they have a responsibility to represent their employer. And whether people say it or not, or whether it's spoken or not, if an employer, if, a, if their employer does not want something to be reflected in WCAG, most people are not going to do that. I mean, it's common sense, right? So the development of WCAG is demonstrably inequitable. It is a, an inequitable, I would say, ableist process that provides little to no way for those of us actually in the disability community to provide meaningful feedback on the process of developing WCAG. Now, why does that matter? It matters most because as they transition to WCAG3, one of the things they're doing is developing a different layer of testing. And this is under a lot of criticism, and I'm going to be very quick because we're running out of time and I want to give people a chance to ask questions, and we'll have more about this later. But they are moving to a method where it's not so much pass-fail, it's that people have different levels of accessibility. And so it's going to, in my view, this will make it harder for people with disabilities to sue. It will make it harder for people with disabilities to file complaints uh, because you can get maybe an acceptable level of WCAG conformance that may not actually provide the usability we want. How do I, why am I going out on that limb? Because what they call holistic testing under 3.0 would require uh, people to use native users, those of us who have disabilities and use assistive technologies, to test the content for usability. That in the working draft, which is subject to change, so I want to be clear about that, uh, the holistic testing is only required for the highest level of conformance, which will never be what becomes the legally acceptable standard. So in the legally acceptable standard, there will be absolutely, as there is now, no requirement to include people with disabilities 
in the testing process. And so the usability component, which is actually way more important than the accessibility component in my view, because something can be accessible and yet technically not usable, um, is not going to be required. And that's something that if it was driven by people with disabilities, if what matters to the disability community mattered to the development of WCAG, and if those of us with disabilities had undivided loyalty, that is, we weren't also representing our employers, uh, things like this might come up in a stronger way. And I personally, as a lawyer, am actually afraid uh, that WCAG3 will make it harder, not easier, for us to exercise our rights. And the final thing I'll say is, I say that because as a person who's been in the field for a long time, this idea that you can encourage people to do better by giving them options and letting them reach certain thresholds that may not be fully usable is nonsense. And I think most disability advocates would agree with that, that people will all, by and large, with a few exceptions, will do the bare minimum they have to do out of trouble. That's wrong, but that is unfortunately how most of this stuff seems to go. Uh, and with that, I'll see if we have any questions and we'll revisit the technical stuff in, a, in a, another episode. Uh, we have no hands in Zoom and we have about three minutes left. Yeah, I'm checking. I know. Mm -hmm. uh, so no in hands that on case, Clubhouse. In that case, uh, with no hands up, I will thank our hosts. I'm sorry because I got here late. I don't know your names, uh, but thank you for helping today. Uh, I appreciate it. And with that, we will see you in two weeks. We will do a discussion of disability equity and disability justice. And again, if you want to be on the Zoom call, please write me at Jonathan at Demand Our Access or fill out the contact form, and I would love to have you in. I will send out uh, an invite for that um, toward the end of this week. I just want to make sure people have a chance to say they want to come. Uh, thank you, everybody, and have a nice day.